2: I think the most important thing people have to realize is that just because you love somebody, you aren't going to be the same financially. You're going to have different goals and you're going to have different wants. And if you get into a position where one person is making the rules, that feels really parental. And and that's not good for a marriage.
3: Welcome to U Turns, the podcast where we talk about all things change.
4: I am Lisa Oz. And I am Jill Herzig. And the topic today got me thinking about our money personalities. And, oh, you know, good Lord, mine's yeah. in the closet. In the closet? <laughs> You're a closet, what
3: then? No, nothing. Like, I don't want to talk about money, that kind uh, of closet money person. What's your money personality?
4: Um, I am insanely conservative, and it has actually cost me in various different
3: That's the only situations. part of your life that you are conservative I'm,
4: in. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I, I will take risks. I, my husband and I, I think, are the only people in America who oversaved for college. We oversaved— now we have to figure out what to do with the excess money that's in the accounts. You know, we've missed a lo- we've actually missed important opportunities because we were so convinced that we couldn't possibly be there financially. Anyway, that's my that's my that's my Achilles heels, that's, over-conservative.
3: That's your money personality. Okay, well, our guest today is going to help us sort out all our money issues, both per- personality and otherwise. Um, she is the CEO and co-founder of Her Money. She is the best-selling author of 11 books. Holy cow, I don't know how you have time to do that. Her latest is Women With Money. Gene Chatsky. Thank you so much for being with us here today.
2: Thank, thank you for having me. I'm so excited.
4: Thrilled that you're here.
2: Money. Money. <laughs> I know. It's it is it is just a heavy duty topic and it needs to be lighter. It needs to be one of those things that we can just talk about at the dinner table. It's or- like sex.
3: And death and money. No one wants to talk about those things ever. I you want to talk the the word about sometimes? Sex. I'd rather <clears throat> talk
2: about sex than money. You are not unusual. I mean, there have been actual studies on this, and people would rather talk about religion and politics and sex. I don't think they surveyed death, because I'm not exactly sure where that would have ranked. But it, people hate talking about money. Why? Because we didn't grow up talking about it, because we don't know enough about it, so we feel very inadequate. We feel often guilty when we compare ourselves to other people that we either have too much or we have too little. There's so much baggage associated with money, and really it's just a tool. It's it's It should be just this tool that we use to get what we want in life. And if we could figure out how to approach it in that less emotional way, we would do ourselves a lot of good.
4: And do you think that that women in particular could help one another by talking more openly about money? No
2: question. You um, were both kind enough to come on my podcast, and that's what we do there every single week. We just open the door and have a conversation about some topic in our life that money touches, which is everything, right? I mean, if you if you think about life and you want to talk about your kids or your parents or education or cooking or i mean i can find a money angle on on everything including sex well <laughs> <laughs> because money
3: is just a way that we physicalize value right because that is how that is the tangible form of what you do and who you are that society shows you that they value. So it's a huge reflection on your sense of self, I think.
2: Yeah, and if you can get yourself to prioritize it in line with your values, then you've won. I mean, the problem is we go through life and we we act first and we... Think later mm-hmm. when it comes to money. So we spend now and then we regret it later or we save as you were talking about. And then we think, oh boy, I wish I would have done it differently. And if we can get ourselves to a place where we know what our life priorities are and, and stack our financial life up so that it supports those priorities, whether it's more time with friends and family, whether it's giving back, whether it's starting a business, whether it's uh, taking yourself out for a wonderful dinner with friends that you haven't seen for a long time, all of a sudden it starts to make sense and it starts to support us in whatever we want to do rather than dragging us down. And why are we so
4: perverse about it? Because what you're saying I think is completely true, and yet so often we don't behave with our money in ways that actually coincide and support our values. So why? Why are we? Why are we so whacked that way?
2: We are whacked is a really good <laughs> word for it. Um, there, there are two reasons. There's there's biology and there's emotion, and they're they're very very tightly wrapped together. But. This whole discipline of behavioral finance has sprung up in universities around the country. Richard Thaler won the Nobel Prize for it in 2017, all looking into why human beings are irrational when it comes to money, why we do things consistently that we know are not in our own best interest. And biology doesn't help us. Because we are still not very far evolved from our caveman and cavewoman ancestors, you know, we are still in our brains wired for immediate gratification. We want to kill it and we want to eat it immediately because we are not sure when another meal is going to come along, and so we do things that uh, we do things that prioritize the present when. What we need to be doing is prioritizing the future um, and using a lot of our assets in a a way that help us down the road rather than today. But then emotion comes along and it just mucks up the waters something awful because money in people's minds is not just a tool. It's, It's love and it's power and it's security and it's independence. And all of those factors are influenced by how money was treated in the home where you grew up even even if you never talked about it you absorbed what was going on in in your childhood and that impacts you to this day and so we get emotional and emotion makes us act logic makes us think but emotion makes us just act and so we make decisions about money really quickly that don't line up with what we want long-term. So
3: when you talk to people on your,
2: on your podcast
3: or in person or through your books, how do you get them to—because that's instinctive. It and you can't, you can't really control how you feel, but how do you stop yourself from acting on those impulses and those emotions around money? How, how can you let your brain take over your finances rather than your gut?
2: Sometimes you can train yourself to just slow it down a little bit, to to pause, to think about the fact that when you're about to purchase something, you just got to think about it for a minute and ask yourself a couple of basic questions. Why am I doing this? What's this for? Where am I going to put it? I mean, (laughs) you know, just some basic things that can get you to... To just stop for a second and realize maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe I don't want to do this right now. You can set up policies that you're not going to hit the computer and do online shopping after you had a glass of wine. Right? I mean, those (laughs) no, because those are the sorts of things they bring. Safety first, people. (laughs) Yeah, they bring. It's not always about not spending, right? No, sometimes it's about spending on things that you really value that you really want to spend the money on. But saving is the harder challenge. Spending's way too easy, and (laughs) saving, which is not a lot of fun, is way too hard. And so the other thing that we can do really effectively is automate ourselves into good behavior. We can take a cue from 401ks, which have been shown to be pretty much the most successful savings tool that we have in this country. And the reason they work is because you don't have to think about it. The You you get a, a deposit in your 401k is made automatically, comes right out of your paycheck, you never see it, you never touch it, so you never spend it. And there are these barriers that are set up in the form of taxes and penalties that further dissuade you from getting the money. And so if we can do that in other parts of our lives, make automatic savings decisions just happen, then we really buy ourselves a lot of success. Now, 401ks are on the
4: decline a little bit because companies, we live in a gig economy now, and companies are increasingly, people are, are more in the freelance mode. So can you... Give us a quick idea of if you don't have a 401k, what can you do?
2: Yeah, you can basically rig up your own, and you can you can actually do what's called a solo 401k, but mm-hmm. you can also just open an IRA. Um, a Roth IRA where you've already paid taxes on that money and you never have to pay taxes again, or a traditional IRA, and for this year, we can put in up to $6,000 into these accounts, plus another 1000 if you're over 50. But to make it successful, you have to automate. You can't rely on this human brain that is wired for impulsivity to do the right thing all the time. And so just make it easy. Set up a, open an IRA, tell that brokerage firm to automatically reach its hands into your checking account and pull 500 bucks out or whatever you can afford every single month. Put the money into a preset portfolio that makes sense for you, a mix of stocks and bonds, and, and you're done. And then you can just visit it over time and feel good about the fact that you've done it set it and forget it Mm -hmm. when we come back we're going to talk more
3: about women with money
0: this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global when you come back with a Purdue Global degree you create opportunity for yourself your family and your future it's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect
3: We are talking with Jean Chatsky, the eleven times best-selling author. Holy cow!
4: And the financial editor of the Today Show. And in her spare time. Yes, my goodness, Wonder Woman here. No,
3: um, and we're getting our financial lives in order. Um, but I specifically want to talk about your latest book, which is "Women with Money." How are women different than men with money? Why is that a topic? And and how? Jill and I are both women, (laughs) and a lot of our listeners are women. Um, How can we optimize our relationship with money?
2: I was really uh, taken, Jill, with the story that you told at the top of the show about being conservative and wanting security. Because I, in doing the research for this book, asked hundreds of women, what do you want? What do you want from your money? And security was the very first thing that came out of their mouths. And not not the word security 100% of the time, but safety and stability and savings in the bank. And it manifested itself. It, we didn't just want a home. We wanted a home with a paid-off mortgage. And we didn't just want a car. We wanted a safe car. And I I went back into my own life and looked at it after going through these interviews and realized, oh my God, there is a Volvo wagon in my garage. Right i i want these I want these things too. And only once we get past this need for safety, do we allow ourselves to want some of these other things. Was this true across
4: generations? Do you yep. find millennial women
2: say this as well? Often, even more because
3: oh, really? well, when we they're look, surprising, they're childbearing years. It's all biological. Mm. What's the best survival possibility for my offspring?
2: I think that that's definitely part of it, but I also think millennials grew up in this era where their parents' financial world was rocked in 2008. They, Mm -hmm. They saw their parents lose jobs, lose houses, lose portfolios, retirement security. And they're entering the workplace at a time when the workplace isn't stable. Right. So, right. the millenni- you know, they're more the likely... The gig economy where yeah, you can't really count on
4: a company to, to be your partner in financial wellness, freedom, stability, all of it.
2: Right. So they're trying to do impossible things like put together an emergency cushion and find their own health insurance and yes save for this someday retirement whatever it's going to look like 50 years from now down the road not having that important corporate partner that that many of us were lucky to have at least for a little a little while and that's so scary that it makes it makes them more likely to hold on to savings what we know about millennials is that they are actually really good savers mm. they're not Great at getting themselves to invest, they want the they want the cash in the bank, and that is dangerous.
4: Yeah, right? under the mattress is no place for money
2: because you earn nothing on it. You you lose money after taxes and inflation. You know, it, it's the the irony is that all of this wanting. Of safety and stability actually makes us less financially secure. We have to get to the point where we can invest in order to get ahead and it's a really tough leap for a lot of people to make, a lot of women to make
3: so you need to take a little risk in order to have any gain at all. yeah. how do you get people how do you get that message across, especially if you're really worried about about not having enough. Yeah,
2: so I um, I ask those women who do have four hundred one k's and other retirement accounts to look at those because what we often don't realize is that we're investing already. You know, we are already doing it, and in most cases, we're already doing it very well. And if you can get yourself to acknowledge that you've already got this skill, hmm. then sometimes you can own it, and that'll give you more confidence. If you're just starting, you've got to start small and then watch the fact that you can actually do this. Even if you just put $100 into a brokerage account with a robo-advisor that, that makes the choices of the investments for you, or you just put it into an index fund through a, through an IRA or a Roth IRA, if you keep adding to it it on a regular basis, it does give you a sense that you are able to accomplish but this. What if
3: the issue isn't you? What if the issue is trust in the system? And I think what you said was millennials witnessed, you know, the, the crash. What if I'm not putting it in the Roth IRA or using a RoboCop, I mean RoboCop, <laughs> see my mind's going, a robo-investor because I don't trust them, not me.
2: I I um I completely understand where you're going, and I think we need to do research into firms that we trust, make sure that we find a company that we feel comfortable with, but abdicating isn't the answer because abdicating means putting the money in the mattress, and, and that does absolutely nobody any good. I mean, the system that we have is not perfect, uh, but it's the system that we have, and we've got to just go with it. Yeah. So money is really helpful when you're facing a U-turn.
4: Often U-turns um, r- sort of rock your world because you don't feel like you have the financial stability to weather them. So help us help us around that. Help us with the idea, particularly for women,
2: mm-hmm.
4: um, since that's the focus of your book, how can you shore yourself up so you feel better able to handle the inevitable U-turns when they come, and if you're not so shored up and a U-turn sideswipes you,
2: what do you do? Let's take that last part of the question first, because I think that's usually the scenario. Yes, sadly, I think it is. We just don't expect these things when they happen. Even even things like retirement take about 60% of people by surprise, which is shocking. But, Mm -hmm. you know, your company downsizes. All of a sudden you're retired and you didn't expect to be retired for another 10 years. It's really important at any sort of life transition to get honest with your numbers. And numbers are really scary for a lot of people. They're scary for a lot of women. But you need to look at your costs. You need to look at what you have in savings, what you have in investments, what you have coming in, but more importantly, what you've got going out. Because the money going out is is more controllable. You can do things to reduce your cost outlay in a lot of ways. And and sometimes they're little things, right? We I'm so sick of the coffee example, but we hear it <laughs> all the time that, that you know, stop buying the coffee, stop going out to lunch. And and that may do the trick for people who are looking to make some budgetary tweaks, it's not going to do the trick if you're facing a major U-turn. You've got to look at the big stuff. you got to look at where am I living and what am I mm. driving and what am I spending on education for my kids and what am I spending on health care and are there any of those costs that I can control in a more significant way? Yeah, A friend of mine
4: um, went through a divorce a few years ago and they owned this Beautiful, beautiful brownstone, which she initially felt like, you know, I'm going to buy my husband out of this. I got to have this house. And um, when she sold it and downsized, she was so unbelievably happy. It changed everything. I, I and it changed her view of the U-turn of divorce because suddenly she was making choices instead of scrabbling to maintain something that wasn't she. It wasn't sustainable anymore.
2: Yeah. I mean, I did the same thing when I got divorced. I, My husband and I had decided that I was going to be the one to move because I, I just couldn't—it was too much house for me to manage. I didn't want to do it, but I consciously made this decision to buy a house that was smaller than I could afford, that was something I could actually manage on my own, and that I could—that um, gave me the freedom to put money in the bank because at that point in my life, savings— in the bank, were the only thing that made me feel secure and safe. Is there ever ever a time... When you just told that story, it was funny because we got the exact
3: opposite advice when we were very young, um, and I'm, I'm wondering if there's ever a time in your life where you actually are on an upward um, trajectory of earning power, and it's okay to spend more than you might not be comfortable with? Because when we bought our first apartment, and it, believe me, it was not luxurious, it was not... It was one bedroom and there were three of us and then four and a rabbit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we slept in the in the um, living room. But our friend said to us, he said, listen, you're going to be making more money next year than you are this year. And in, in three years, you're going to be making more money than you are the year after that buy something that stretches you a little because as soon as you can afford it, you're going to hate it and you're going to want to move. So at least this way, you'll be like relatively happy for 10 years in the same place because it's a little above what you need right now or what you can afford right now, but it's a little less than you can afford. Amortized over those 10 years, it makes sense. Does that is that a totally stupid piece of advice? Not at all.
2: Okay. <laughs> not No, not at all. And in fact, when when I bought that house originally with my ex-husband, we did exactly the same thing we looked at where we were in our careers and where we were likely to be in our careers and especially if you you've just gotten a degree or you are looking at a, a, a relatively predictable income stream or you're you're running your own business or your own gig and you've been watching the numbers and you've been seeing that you're actually doing 15-20% better every single year then I think it's it's a fine thing to do. And the other thing is, and and this is just something to keep in mind, assets are fungible, right? I mean, it might not be fun to sell the house and to move. It might not be fun to take money that you had put aside for one thing and just use it for something else, but we can do that, right? We just have to sit down and plan out a way to do it that makes sense. When we come back, we're going to talk more about money with Jean Chesky.
3: We're talking about money with Gene Chatsky and you say Gene that there are only five things that we actually need to know about money. Can you walk us through those five? Five things that we need to do
2: actually oh, and we you, have to do them. We can't them. just know them, we have to do them. We have to do them on a consistent basis. But if if you can if you can get yourself to actually do these things then what you Quickly realizes that it's not a lot of rocket science. It's just good habits. And so, first thing you got to do is make money, right? And you have to make, you got to make, not win the lottery. No, but you got to make a decent amount of money, but it doesn't have to be an absurd amount of money because what we know is that as long as we can live comfortably, and that means you can pay your mortgage, you can pay your rent, you can. Drive a car that isn't going to break down on the highway, and you can go out to eat and on vacation every once in a while. Once you've got those things, more money is not going to make you more happy. Um, so there is definitely Yeah, a- there is a
4: lot of research backing that up that, that you know, once, once you've got the basics plus a couple reasonable luxuries covered,
2: mm-hmm. it's not, you're not going to get happier— Beyond that threshold. Right. So that's something important to keep in mind. The second thing is that you have to spend less than you make. And you got to do it consistently. Um, And that is where many, many people get into trouble because credit is far too free-flowing. But figuring out what you have coming in and what you have going out is the trick to making sure that that happens. Third thing, you got to take the money that you're not spending and put it to work. So, not just money under the mattress, as we've been talking about, but money in investments where they are set up so that over time they will produce more money for you. This is the making money as we sleep that we all aspire to. Fourth, we got to protect this financial life that we're building, which means health insurance. If you've got dependents, you need life insurance. We all need, you know, mortgage and home and auto insurance if we have those assets. And we need an estate plan, just a basic one, to make sure that the people and the things that we love are taken care of as well. So at the very minimum, if you've got kids or um, assets that you care about, you have to have a will. And fifth, got to give back. And you have to give back in a way that is really meaningful to you. So whether you volunteer, whether you give money, Whether you have some other charitable organization that you're involved in, it does boost happiness. And so that's why that one's on the list. Hmm. Doing something useful with your money. Exactly. Yeah, interesting. Um, I heard you uh, talking
4: recently on your podcast, Her Money, um, about women being more open with one another and even maybe, touching the third rail here, telling each other what we earn.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, can we talk about? Do you have a position on that? An official position? Is it something that we're all just still
2: feeling out? I think the millennials are leading the way here. They're much more willing to share these sorts of numbers. I, I'm, I'm for it in theory and in practice. I think it's really really hard because what you don't want is to come into the office the next day and hate the person at the next desk Mm. because you know that they're making more than you are and you feel like you're producing more than they are and it just sets the whole place afire. And so my new theory on this is that the very best time to share salary information is on your way out the door one person at a time. If you're leaving a job and you want to help the other women in your organization rise up and earn what they deserve, that's the time to tell somebody, a couple of people, hey, this is how much you should be asking for. And hmm. then you can go and you don't have to go back. And they can use that information to get more. Hmm. Hmm. All right. That makes sense.
4: It t- it totally makes sense. I do remember leaving a job once and finding out um, – it was the opposite. I found out what other people had made. and um, it was a little painful, yeah, because you know, there were I was working my butt off and in a pretty pivotal role in this organization. and there were people for very good market reasons who were making a bunch more than me um but hierarchically, it didn't make sense. And, and responsibility-wise, it didn't make sense at all.
1: And
2: I think the market reasons are the reasons that we often don't understand and don't um, acknowledge. And and you're right. They exist for a whole bunch of, of reasons. Somebody came in from a job where they were earning more and the company had to pay them more to get them to come. I, I, I had an in- I had an incident with an early boss of mine at a magazine who I went in, I asked for a raise, I presented the fact that I was actually producing a lot more than I was being paid for, and he said, I'd love to give you a raise, go get another offer um, because I need to be able to justify it to my boss. And so, you know, I did that. I felt kind of bad about it because I had no intention of going to the other place but it, it, uh, it worked. How do you accurately assess your value in the workplace? Because we all think we're
3: superstars, right? Of course. And, oh, you should pay me everything. Um, so just your own sense of self-worth should not be how you determine
2: what you get paid. No, you can do research. There, there's a lot of research on the Internet these days. There's, there are sites like uh, Payscale and Glassdoor where salary.com, where you can actually get a decent sense. And then I like to look at the ads the company is running for new employees because if it's a new employee sort of at your level and you can see what they're offering to pay that person, it's a pretty good barometer too. I like these. These are very crafty. Crafty. <laughs> this is what you get when you're married to an executive recruiter.
4: Um, and And... Let's just return for a second since you've mentioned um marriage, and I know your wonderful husband as well, who's an executive recruiter. Um, how do you money compatibility is a whole other mm-hmm. level of compatibility? And you can weirdly find people who are wonderfully well suited to one another, except in that one in that one. Aria, if you're in a relationship with someone that's serious, so much so that your financial lives are somewhat enmeshed, what are you looking for in terms of compatibility? And are you implying that Elliot's like a spendthrift? Or- <laughs> no. no,
2: please, it's the other way
4: around. Um, <laughs> but I think Elliot listens to you. I think that's the most important. He,
2: he does listen <laughs> to me. Success of
4: your marriage, right there.
2: But he also pushes me to be a little less conservative than I would normally be. Okay, um, and. I think the most important thing people have to realize is that just because you love somebody, you aren't going to be the same financially. You're going to have different goals and you're going to have different wants. And if you get into a position where one person is making the rules, that feels really parental and and that's not good for a marriage. I think it's important that each person has the ability to spend some money, give some money away, save some money without asking permission. Hmm. And that can be having a pool of money that's your own, having a separate account. It can just be drawing a line in the sand that, you know, under this amount of money, we don't have to talk about it. It's, you know, we we can afford this and nobody's going to go crazy. But if I want to go and have lunch with my girlfriends or you want to go and do whatever it is you want to do... Go, you know, have fun. It's not if you it's each have when, a little bit
4: of a slush fund that you can tap without permission and argument.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and there is no need to defend what you do with that money. It's it's your money. It's your decision. It's personal, and it doesn't mean that you don't love the other person if they disagree with your use of it. It's just different people have different needs, and and marriage doesn't change that. My husband has a penchant for a certain
4: vintage of Russian watch.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They are very inexpensive.
4: Thank you, God. Thank you, God. But he is tracking them on eBay all the time, and I would say once every couple of months, I look down at his wrist. And it's a different watch. How many ah. can he own? This oh, is crazy. a lot. What? A what? Lot. There's also a certain kind of Japanese robot. Really? It's a, it's a children's toy. <laughs> and well. we built a special shelf to house them. No. None of these things are expensive, by the way. But the shelf, which was expensive to build, is not big enough anymore for all the Japanese robots. Okay. That's it. I'm done. You just venting t- t- <laughs> a bit. I feel a <laughs> lot better. Let me introduce
3: you to, this, to the shoe department at Saks, and you can show him <laughs> what it feels like. Exactly. Uh, okay, so we're, one of the things you mentioned earlier in this interview, you said that you needed to earn money while you were sleeping. Make your money work for you so you're not only working for money. Mm-hmm. But you also have said that with investment strategies, boring is better.
2: Yes. Why Why is boring better? Because when it comes to investments, for the most part, um, low-cost, simple portfolios where you put work into figuring out what sort of asset allocation you need, the percentage of your money that should be in stocks and in bonds and in cash— takes care of most of the problem. And that's a really simple thing to do. You can put your money into a target date retirement fund, and it'll handle the asset allocation decisions for you. We, we get caught up, women in particular, get caught up in this idea that to be a good investor, you have to be trading, you have to be in the market picking stocks. You have to be watching what the markets do every day. And I would argue that would make you a bad investor. You know that? <laughs> a day trader is a bad investor? Well, a day trader, is it, that's a different business. That's not... It, people who have jobs that, that we go to every day and businesses that we go to every day don't have time to be day traders and shouldn't be trying to do all of these things that take a lot of research and strategy you can put your money into a very straightforward portfolio, keep adding to it over time, and that'll do it. You know, that, uh, getting the returns that the market has generated, not beating the market, just being in the market and meeting the market where it is, has been enough for people over the course of history. Great advice. Jean Chatsky, thank you so
3: much for being with us Thank you for having
4: me. Listeners, to get more soothing and calming wisdom from Jean Chatsky, go to hermoney.com, the platform that Jean runs. Also find her at Jean Chatsky on Twitter. Jean, thank you so much for joining us. I also want to do a shout-out to Alicia Haywood, our terrific producer who put this together today.
3: And to you, listeners, reach out to us at U-Turns Podcast, and don't forget to rate and review. Thanks, everybody.
0: com.